Our scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 27, and then continuing through chapter 12, verse 9. In the Pew Bible, this is on page 8. Genesis chapter 11, verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to, um, now the Lord said to Abram, Excuse me. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and, I, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Amen. Good morning. Welcome, Jeffrey. Thank you for the scripture reading this morning. Let me pray for us as we look to this together. Father, we pause uh, for a moment together to once again bow in the recognition of your presence. We pray now that uh, your word that is just uh, laid out before us would uh, capture our uh, attention, our, our thinking, our affections. We pray actually that your spirit would be our, our teacher and our helper that the, the great interest that we have in the Lord Jesus would be our, our great concern today and that you would gain much glory in these things we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. It's taken uh, four and a half years, uh, but today I'm able to fulfill a promise that I made back in July of 2019. Some of you have been holding this against me, so I'm glad to uh, get it sorted out now, uh, which is that we would return to our study in the book of Abraham and finish uh, what we started. 
If you weren't around at that point, it helps to know that we took a pause in our study in the middle months of 2019 because uh, there's another church here in Lakewood called Cross Point Church uh, that was uh, joining up with us here at Parkside West Side. And with something as momentous as that happening as a church congregation, it seemed it would be appropriate to push pause on what we were doing and start something fresh together. And that's how we got going through the book of Acts, which seemed like a good place to go if you're going to start something new as a church. What's the church all about? And so we pushed pause on Abraham, and we resumed in Acts. For various reasons, which I won't bore you with, uh, we didn't get back to our character study of Abraham right after the book of Acts, but, uh, but now we are here as promised. And side note, I do intend to get back to our study in the book of Matthew. No, I don't anticipate. That will take four years. Um, we are actually at this really good point in Matthew's book to take a pause. Uh, it's kind of split up into five little sections, and the end of 13 is the natural conclusion of the third section. So God willing, a uh, future date will pick up in section 4, uh, Matthew chapter 14. Now, as we begin to return to the days of Abraham, uh, let me also just give a little bit more background and mention uh, that his life story is told basically from the end of Genesis 11 here up through chapter 25 when uh, he, he dies. In uh, July of 2019, we were at chapter 18, which is essentially the middle point of the chronicling of his life. And so I said to myself, well, how in the world do you get back into uh, a sermon series like this? And I was talking with a couple of friends, and one of them mentioned, how about this? Why don't we just do a couple sort of uh, snapshots from previous studies from 11 through 18, get us back up to speed, and then we'll start in chapter 18 and begin to work sequentially through the rest of the story as we typically do. I said, that's a really good idea. So uh, for the next couple of Sundays, we will revisit a few uh, scenes here and there from Abraham's life up through 18, and then we'll pick things up and go on in detail. If you were not here in 2019 and all of this is unfamiliar to you, I think we'll be able to catch up to speed together. In fact, uh, what I want to have done next for us is uh, have a little video played. It's uh, five minutes long. This is not something that we often do, but it's not something that we never do. Uh, this little video, it's, it's helpful in two ways. One, because it helps uh, tell the big story that's being told from Genesis 1 through Genesis 50. And then within that, it tells the sub-story that's being told about Abraham and all of his descendants. So that, there's a lot going on there, but if you want to get into the book, you need to have the big picture in view. So uh, we'll have this played for us. It's clever. Um, it's fairly brief, but I think that'll help a, a good way to on-ramp to uh, give us a start in things. So uh, please and thank you. We're walking through the book of Genesis, which is made up of these two main parts. And the first part begins in the garden, where we watch humanity spiral downward in self-destruction. And it ends in the Tower of Babel, where a rebellious humanity is scattered by God. Then the second part of Genesis zooms in and focuses on just one family. And right in the middle is this story that links the two parts of Genesis together and helps us understand what the whole book is all about. So how do we get from the Tower of Babel to the story here in the middle? Well, after the scattering at Babel, there's this genealogy, and it follows one of the tribes all the way down to this one guy named Abram. You probably know him as Abraham. And God starts making all these promises to Abraham, like he's going to bless him and give him a ton of kids. And he says that through him and his family, all the nations of the earth are now going to find God's blessing. So basically, God is trying to restore humanity back to the goodness of the garden 
and to his original intentions for the world. So it's like his rescue plan for humanity. And that's why the whole second half of Genesis is about this one family. And so you have, you have Abraham, and then he has a son, Isaac, who has Jacob, and then Jacob has 12 sons. And to each generation, God renews his promise to bless them and all nations through them. So because of this promise to use this family to rescue the world, it's pretty easy to read these stories as examples of how to be a good person. But actually, for the most part, this family is totally dysfunctional. So for example, let's go back to Abraham. This whole story is about God giving him and his wife Sarah a family, but two different times. He basically gives Sarah away to other men by denying that she's even his wife. And then Sarah gets impatient about having a son, and so she makes Abraham sleep with her servant girl, which then causes all of these other problems in the family. So they get really old, and you begin to think that there's no way they're going to have a kid of their own. But then, miraculously, they do. It's Isaac. And Isaac, he has two sons, Esau and Jacob, and it seems like things are going pretty good. But Jacob... The younger brother wants the family's inheritance, which belongs to Esau, the older brother. So he devises a plan where he's going to steal it from his father, Isaac, who at this point in the story is now old and blind. Which who does that horrible stealing from your blind father? Yeah, and then he just takes off. So Jacob goes on from there to have 12 sons, big family. But Jacob loves his 11th son, Joseph, way more than all the others. And so he gives him the special technicolor dream coat and his brothers because of this come to hate him so much so that they plan on killing him but they don't they instead just sell him as a slave down in egypt now while in egypt through this crazy series of events joseph goes from being in a prison cell to becoming the second in command there and so later on the the whole middle east falls into this food shortage and joseph's brothers they come down to egypt looking for food and then when they get there who should they find as the ruler of the whole land? It's Joseph, that guy they sold into slavery. But he actually saves them from starving to death. And so here you have it. These are the great-grandchildren of Abraham who have done this heinous act to their brother. But God has transformed their evil into something good. And that's exactly what Joseph says here in the last paragraph of the entire book. He says, you guys planned all of this for evil, but God planned it good to save people's lives. Now these words, they conclude the book because they actually summarize the message of the whole story so far. Humans keep choosing evil and we are thinking they're, they're screwing up God's plan, but he keeps turning their evil back into good. And somehow he's going to use this family to restore humanity back to the garden. So that's the book of Genesis. But we still don't know how exactly he's going to use this family to bring us back to the garden. Well, yeah, but this is just the first book. So that's what the rest of the Bible sets out to answer. Like I said, it's clever. It's a little surprise as you think that God's family that he's going to choose to use are going to be a bunch of super Christian people. Uh, they're highly dysfunctional and they're a mess and all these things because ultimately it's a promise that comes to and through a family, but it's the unfolding purposes of God that is the, the, the real powerful story at work. And, and that's what we're going to get a glimpse of here. So this will not be a series of sermons of be like Abraham. Uh, that'll be a relief to you because you go, that wasn't very nice what he did exactly because sometimes we learn from the uh, messes that we see in other people's lives, but we take great confidence in the hand of God at work in them all. 
As we think about uh, families, it made me think of one of the uh, favorite Christmas gifts that I received just a month ago, which was a photo album from Beth's parents, which had uh, a collection of, a whole collection of pictures from Beth's uh, growing up years, basically the, the first 20 years of life before uh, we met one another, before we were married. And so our mom just did this terrific job of, of putting the story together in pictures. You've got the classic pictures from uh, school days, all of them lined up together, uh, hairstyles from various decades of life. Uh, there's a, a picture of her team and a floor hockey team uh, and a gym in Battle Creek, Michigan, in which I played floor hockey. And I was like, oh my goodness, were we at the same place at the same time? You know, that, anyways, these sorts of things, not that you care about, but that, it was precious to me. And uh, as we, you, you move through it, you know that the pictures aren't telling the, the whole story, but they are capturing a lot with a little bit of this and, and a little bit of that. And I just say that because that's really what the book of Genesis is doing through Abraham. Uh, we're, we're not getting uh, every detail about his life, but we are getting the most important things about his life. We're getting little photoshops or photos of him that are uh, thread together for us. And that's really how I want to approach just these few verses at the end of Genesis 11. It's, it's, the, it's the start of the story, which starts in kind of an obscure way. But we're introduced to Abraham's family by uh, learning a little bit about his family tree. Uh, we find out where he hailed from. We learn a little bit about his marriage to Sarai. And all these things begin to paint a picture of who he is and what life is like for him. And the first thing uh, that we are... Uh, told about Abram here, and I'm going to do my best just to refer to him for now as Abram until he gets his name changed as Abraham, but I'll, I'll try to keep it straight. But the first thing we to are told here is something very, very ordinary, which that he has siblings. Verse 27, he has siblings in his life. Uh, like you, potentially, he's got two brothers. There's one called Nahor and another called Haran. They are sons of a guy called Terah, and we know at least a little bit about this guy that he's a direct descendant of Noah But when it comes to Abram's mom, we don't know much about her family heritage uh, These two brothers these three brothers rather presumably were like most brothers uh, They got along they palled around they fought with each other I'm sure they had days where they liked each other other days in which they were annoyed by each other. They're the ordinary family His family of course is living in an agriculturally driven society so uh, they didn't have stocks and bonds in terms of wealth represented, wealth represented uh, but they had camels and sheep. And so it was that this is life. In just one sort of phrase, historically speaking, uh, we're living in the Bronze Age of world history. So all of this is around the year 2000 B.C. And it's taking place in a portion of the world in which historians uh, refer to as the cradle of civilization. It's the cradle of civilization because it's here that ancient people first gathered into cities and established societies. And they were religious people. Uh, we are inherently aware that there is something bigger than ourselves, beyond ourselves. We are religious people. We're always worshiping something, even if we say we're not religious. Uh, these people were religious. Uh, people in ancient Mesopotamia, they worshiped a whole pantheon of mythical gods uh, ruled by really one big one, the, the moon god. He was uh, regarded as the Lord of heaven and the divine creator. All that means that uh, Abram, like his neighbors, uh, was, he wasn't a monotheist in Genesis 11. That is to say, that he had not yet had an encounter with the one true and living God. 
He was a religious uh, pluralist. And speaking of his family, uh, they're a big family. Uh, some of you probably come from backgrounds in which you are very close with uh, grandparents and, and your own generation and kids. You maybe even live in proximity to each other. You do lots of things together. Well, this is uh, normative uh, for Abram. They, uh, I don't know if they all lived under the same roof or tent, but they did a lot of living together. Uh, so if they went out to eat, whatever, uh, there was never a table for three. It was, you know, table for 28, whatever it was. There's, there's a great group. Uh, totally ordinary, totally normal. This is life for Abram and his siblings. Which moves us along to picture number two, because uh, family life here for Abram is probably like yours and mine, which is that uh, they were no strangers to sadness. Because another picture that pops up from his life is that Abram had a brother who passed away. Uh, we don't know exactly when, but at some point in the earlier years of things, he has a brother pass away when he's, when he's younger. You got these three boys of Terah, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. But at some undisclosed point in time, Abram's brother, Haran, passes away. It is quite stark, the way verse 28 puts it. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred. It's not lost in us how uh, devastating a blow it is for a dad to outlive his son or for a mom to have to, uh, to bury her, her little one. For any parent to have to lay to rest a son or daughter in the prime of life, it is a peculiar sorrow. We know, of course, that Abram is going to become a remarkable man of faith. So he's often referred to of throughout the Bible, but we see right away that it doesn't mean that he has been safeguarded from, from sadness and sorrows. I mean, even people who have great hope and trust in God can have great suffering and heartache in their lives. Maybe that's actually the way they become such pe people of such great hope and faith is through the sorrows and sadness. Such as Abram loses a brother, a sad affair. The third picture that we come across, I, I think is equally sad in Abram's life, is one at first it begins with his, his wedding day. Uh, verse 30, we see he's married to a woman called Sarai. But we discover that she, too, knows a thing or two about hardship. Because we're told that both uh, Abram and Sarai are unable to have kids. They're unable to have children. At this point in the storytelling, the family tree of Sarai is actually kept cloak, cloaked. But what's doubly reinforced in verse 30 is that this couple struggles with uh, infertility. Which is a burden that I know more than a few in this room bear themselves. It was a particular burden for Sarah. I met maybe even more so in her day because of the way that they considered things. Ian Duguid, he, he helps, I think, give historical perspective uh, by noting this. Not to be able to have children in a society where a woman's value was measured by her, fertil her fertility was a bitter blow indeed. Sarah must have shed many bitter tears over her inability to bear children. If you know where the story is going, you know that her barrenness is going to be healed. But as we begin to take uh, our uh, thumb through the photo book, you can't help but uh, recognize the sadness in the years of uh, prime years of childbirthing. It's not easy to, to read, particularly for some of us. 
but we don't want to rush past the details, even if they make us sad and uncomfortable. Because they're telling us in, in narrative form that the Bible does not promise to us uh, that life is always going to be full of, of smiles and perpetual happiness. In fact, as you read this book more and more, you discover that people seem to live with great burdens of unmet desires, disappointments, uh, heartache. In fact, this seems to be the all-too-common experience of those who are among God's people. I don't say that to discourage us, to be sort of uh, dismissive and say, well, misery loves company. It's none of that at all. I just say it so that we might make a, a clear distinction in our minds, is, which is this, that we might be reminded that, that sorrow is not always in association with some unconfessed sin. Sorrow is not always in association with some unconfessed sin. This is just barrenness and infertility. Uh, we experience these things because we live in a world that's broken. In a world that's been cursed by sin as a result of our rebellion against God, it's, it, we're full of brokenness and tears and hardships. Uh, you go through these uh, periods of life where you're just having these seemingly uh, repeated difficult experiences that you can't make sense of. It's like uh, life is a giant riddle and there are no answers to it, and you keep playing the part of the fool. Uh, I say that so that I can acknowledge uh, that life indeed is very difficult for God's people. But so that we can also say to one another that it's so significant that we're gathered here on a Sunday Because Christians have recognized throughout history now that Sunday is the day when which we remember That Jesus Christ is risen from the dead And in his resurrection from the dead He is bringing hope into the world in a new sort of way with the promise that these things are going to come to a conclusion uh, These sad days are coming to an end and even in the sad days in which we live, we have the Lord Jesus who continues to live to intercede for us. He never stops interceding for you. You, you don't pray all the time, but he never stops praying for you. He not only intercedes for you, but he's sympathetic with the sorrows that you face. We don't think of it often, but it's not insignificant that Jesus is, is known in some ways as the man of sorrows. The man of sorrows, which means, as I said, that sorrow is not always in association with some unconfessed sins. Sometimes sorrow is just our lot in life. But it's not meaningless, because Jesus knows about our sorrows. A Christian person, he not only knows your sorrows, but he, he knows uh, your name. And some who have suffered uh, greatly will tell you that you have come to know Jesus more intimately almost through your hardships and sorrows, even more so than days of joy and gladness. Uh, th that is true, because of all the, the verses in the Psalter, one of my favorites is this, is that the, the psalmist says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Near to the brokenhearted. The man of sorrows is near to those with, with sorrowful hearts. So as you think about Abram here, the death of a, a brother, a, a wife heartbroken with a closed womb, it shows us, I think in ever so subtle ways, but very significant that, that these two, they are not super saints. They're not living some sort of charmed, blessed, and prospering life. They're ordinary people. They have unmet desires. 
even as they're being prepared to have an encounter with the one true God who they will discover has numbered all of their days for good, even the sad ones. Makes me think of a song. Uh, last night as I was driving, I was thinking about this uh, material, and there was a, a line that uh, we sing often about how life is, is, is unknown to us. It says that uh, this, we sing to God this word right here. We say that no trial has come uh, beyond your hand, and there's no step that I walk that's beyond your plan. The path is dark outside my view, Still, all my ways are known to you. And I said, well, that's, that's life right there. Uh, the, the path before me, it's, it's dark. It's cloaked. I don't see what's going to happen, which is why I live with the questions all the time of like, well, what if, or what about, or I don't know if this is going to happen. The path uh, beyond me, it's dark beyond my view, but, uh, but not according to the God who sees all and knows all, because Christian friend, uh, the path is known by God. And in the Lord Jesus, you are known and loved by God. You've been adopted into his family as his very own child. And the one who knows you deeply knows all of your days. And he promises to walk with you in them. So yeah, it's the tension. The path is dark outside my view. But still, all my days are known to you. Our joyful days our sorrowful days, our life's transitions. Even those days, the seemingly innocuous ones, which is the next picture that we have of Abram's life. His dad says, hey, we're going to move. It's the, th the, the third picture. The family relocates to the other side of the country. Now, you note in verse 31 that it's actually Abram's father, Terah, who says, hey, I think we're going to move to this land called Canaan, which is eventually this place that God promises to give to Abram. But, but all of that's to come in the future. Uh, none of this is known to Abram, presently speaking. God's going to promise to him in chapter 12, yeah, this land's going to be yours. But here in chapter 11, it's, it's all in the dark. He's just following his dad's lead. That's what often happens. God is unfolding his purposes in our lives. Sometimes we're not even aware of what's happening. Sometimes we're aware, but we're uncertain about what's going to happen next. But this is the life of the Christian person. We believe by faith. We believe seeking understanding, but we're not going to have all of the answers. And even when we don't have all of the answers, or we have some of the answers, God is still unfolding his purposes in his life, in our lives. It's often from the perspective of hindsight that we can connect some of the dots, but not always. Uh, 22 years ago, when I started pastoring uh, students, I had no idea of the way that those skills would be transferable to things beginning to take shape at Parkside Westside. I didn't know that, but now I look back and I go, oh, certainly you have those experiences too. Uh, the, the job that you lost, the conversation that you had, you didn't realize the significance of it in time, and yet you go, I, I now see. But at other times, we don't see, and it's a struggle. It's a mystery to us. But even so, God is unfolding good purposes, even when the things are unclear to us, which is just what he's doing in Abram's life. Dad says we're moving. He doesn't know what it's all about, but eventually he will see the hand of God that was behind the initiative of his dad's decision to move from southern Mesopotamia to northern Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, 
Verse 31 indicates the GPS has the coordinates for Canaan plugged in, but that the family only gets as far as the city of Haran, which is a little confusing because it's the name of his son who's passed away and it's the name of the city, but it's just what they both are. In contemporary terms, the spot in which they land, Haran, would be modern-day Turkey. Uh, it's not there any longer, but the, uh, the people who dig in the ground have found all sorts of artifacts from the time which give great confirmation to uh, the historical reality of this ancient place. Here goes Abram and his family. They're on the move at this point in world history. And there's great movements of people around the Middle East who are doing the same thing. I think in some ways they're all searching for greener pastures. And that's where that little chapter of Abram's photo album comes to a conclusion, a family on the move in search of, of, of something new. And that's what I want us just to get a sense of as we move back into the story, just how ordinary this beginning story is. It's not a super saint. It's a sad and sorrowful couple. There's an ordinariness to this. But we also have the reader's edge, and we can begin to see that, yeah, even in all of their sadness, even in all of their upcoming uh, sinfulness, that God is going to work through this man to accomplish something uh, wonderful. We'll get to it next week, but it's what God says to him in verse 2 of chapter 12. He says, hey, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I'm going to make your name great so that you actually will be a blessing to all sorts of people. Here's the plan unfolding. And ultimately, we see the clarity of this plan unfolding because if I can sneak a, a picture from the photo album of the New Testament side of things, you discover that Abram is going to have a pretty significant addition made to his family tree. It's a photo album that shows up in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. There's another little ancestry a line given to us, and the book begins in this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And that family tree tells us that Jesus is, in fact, the great, 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 do however many you like, great, great grandson of Abram. And what happens over the course of time is that this promise that God makes to Abram in Genesis 12, it does come true in his life. And then it almost like it bursts beyond his life through the Lord Jesus so that it blesses Abram's family, but then it begins to bless all of the families of the entire world through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. It's when Jesus says at the end of Matthew's gospel, hey, you got this good news here, now take it everywhere, Jerusalem, Judea, everywhere that you go. And you discover that this blessing which comes to Abraham was never meant just to make him super happy, but to be a means and a channel to, through which he would bless all the nations of the world, which is why Paul writes about us Christian people, this in regards to Abraham, Galatians 3. He says, for now that you have faith in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. And if you belong to Christ, you are true descendants of Abraham. True descendants of Abraham. You are the true heirs of his promise. So that means that as Christians, that, that, that we are also the fulfillment of these Abrahamic promises which are made to him in this unique time and space. Uh, Tremper Longman, he says, let me get it, give it to you in just one phrase. He says, the church is the spiritual entity, but metaphorically, uh, we are this great nation who receives and dispenses God's blessing to the world. We're, we're a new sort of people being put together. 
Uh, we're not all Jewish in background. We're from all the nations of the world, and yet we find ourselves brought together because of the blessing of promise to Abraham to, to us. That's how we have to read the Old Testament as New Testament Christian people. We read about the Old Testament life of Abram through the New Testament lens of, of the Lord Jesus, and you discover you get little glimpses of who Jesus will be. Abram, you're going to bless the nations of the world. Jesus, you're going to bring salvation blessings to all the nations of the world. God's plan of rescue. Dysfunctional, rebellious people becomes in a promise given in a garden, finds its next fulfillment in a family through Abraham, and ultimately this picture that will crescendo forward into the book of Revelation, which gives us this picture of this great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's a great picture, the Lamb of God, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, the great, 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 great grandson of Abraham and the Savior of a whole new people who are gathered together from the nations of the world and put into one new family church.